So hi, everyone. Welcome to another virtual author talk. My name is Maria Racina, and I'm a librarian here at the Eleanor London Cote St. Luke Library in Montreal. Today, we have Carrie Mayer joining us, author of The Kennedy Debutante in 2018 and The Girl in White Gloves, a novel of Grace Kelly in 2020, and her newest historical fiction novel, The Paris Bookseller, which we'll be discussing today. So before we begin, I'd just like to thank a few people, uh, Tara O'Connor and Yasmin Hassan at Penguin Random House for helping to organize this event and for sending me a copy of the book as our library copy is out and on a long waiting list. I'd also like to thank Danielle Belanger in the programming department here at the library and Angela, who is in our background being tech support. So if you have trouble with your sound, uh, please contact Angela in the chat. Um, I'm going to go ahead and read a short synopsis of the book now, very short. When bookish young American Sylvia Beach opens Shakespeare and Company on a quiet street in Paris in 1919, she has no idea that she and her new bookstore will change the course of literature itself. So welcome, Carrie. Thank you so much for joining us. I just want to start by asking a little bit about the setting because we were just before uh, you guys tuned in, we were talking about Montreal. So um, the setting of this book, Paris in the 1920s, what drew you to that setting? Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. And um, I'm also grateful to Tara and Yasmin for setting this up. And I've, you got the beautiful new paperback. It's such a pretty, it's got such a pretty cover and people we could talk. I don't know if you're going to ask me about the cover, but um, <laughs> we're doing a little visual <laughs> of, of it right now. Anyway, so why Paris in the 20s? Well, you know, since I was a starry-eyed English major undergraduate um, in college, I've always been drawn to the writers and the, the, the time period of the 1920s, and specifically the writers, the expat writers who left America and went and settled in Paris or visited Paris. So like F. Scott Fitzgerald, for instance, never really lived in Paris like Ernest Hemingway did, but he came and went um, and he went to the, the the Riviera quite frequently, and he was part of that whole scene. So I've always been attracted to Paris in the 20s. Um, you know, even when I, you know, in my sort of um, years between undergrad and graduate school, I would read nonfiction histories of that time period. One that really stands out that I revisited for this book was called um, They Were All So Young by Amanda Vale. And, um, and as it was about uh, Sarah and Gerald Murphy, who were a, a wealthy American couple in Paris in the 1920s, they weren't writers themselves, um, but they were friends with the whole crowd. Um, so I guess that's, I, I've just- But they weren't in the book. They weren't in the, you know, I tried to figure out how to put them in the book. You, I couldn't fit everyone in the book. You know, <laughs> there's just- there were so many writers and artists and Americans, um, cool like cool Americans and Brits and French, you know, um, Frenchmen living in Paris at this time. I couldn't get everyone in there. <laughs> so you chose Sylvia as your lead character. You have this like fantastic cast of characters. Like if it was a film, it'd be like a star-studded cast. And you chose Sylvia. Why? So I'm going to hearken back to those undergraduate days again, um, because it, so I was, there I was obsessed with the twenties. Um, and you know, those great bargain book bins in front of college bookstores. <clears throat> so I was rummaging around in one of those one day and I pull out a book called Shakespeare and company by a, a woman named Sylvia beach. I don't think I knew what that was when I picked up the book, but I flipped over the um, and read the back of the book and it just said Paris in the twenties and like sold. So I think I probably bought it for 75 cents, brought it home and I read it. And it was Sylvia's memoir of her time running Shakespeare and company in the twenties and thirties in Paris, um, which also covered her um, adventure publishing Ulysses, which I'm, again, I'm sure we're going to talk more about. Um, and so I just thought, wow, what an amazing story of this American woman, young American woman who is independent and, um, you know, goes over there and opens this bookstore that effectively changes American, changes, you know, literature, 20th century literature. Um, but again, you know, I was 20 years old. I kind of filed it away under good to know and um, went and, you know, on my own writing adventures. Um, and I wrote, as you mentioned before, the Kennedy debutante and the girl in white gloves. And I was looking around for a third subject and I really quickly homed in on Sylvia. And because I, her story has kind of lived in me my entire adult life, it was sort of 
I was like, why haven't I thought of this before? Especially because, you know, one of my mentor texts was The Paris Wife by Paula McLean, which is about Hemingway's early, you know, first marriage and early years in Paris. Um, it just hadn't occurred to me to write about Sylvia before. And I was, I just feel so privileged and lucky that I got to do it when I did it. Did you already, did you have that copy of the book in hand or did you have to go? No, you know, I looked I had to buy a new, a new copy of that book. I think I lent it to someone somewhere along the way. It never, it never came back to me. As like a library situation. Exactly, exactly. I've had a few books like that in my lifetime. I thought, I don't even know where they are. Someone has it. But sort of in line with that. So you know how every uh, fiction novel has this part at the beginning that says something along the lines of, uh, these are all fictional locations, any resemblance to real people and, and circumstances are purely coincidental, but obviously not the case here. So, um, so that, that's sort of the, the question. You have this like nonfiction and fiction, historical fiction challenge, because you have all of these people that are so well known. So how did you go about sort of discovering them all? Did you have, I guess you must've done for each, or was it more based on their work or their bio biographies or archival material? What was your research? Yeah, so so there's for me, there's sort of two questions in there. One is like, how do I balance, you know, truth and fiction? And then how do I go about doing the research, um, right? So the truth and fiction balance is just a tension I've learned to embrace, right? Um, I like, I really like this um, Hilary Mantel quote. She said, you know, historical fiction is not a photographic representation of a time and place or and people. It's more like a painting with the brush strokes left in. And it's an interpretation, right? It's an interpretation of lives and times and places. So I really embrace that. You know, if you were to write this same book, you would write it differently than I wrote it. <laughs> um, so then the research piece. Uh, you know, I am the first to admit that I could have researched this book till the day I died and never written a word because we're talking, as you said, about the most famous writers of the 20th century who left behind their own lifetime bodies of work and because of their fame and importance, many other people have written about them, you know, so I couldn't read it all. Um, and so I really had to make some hard choices about what I was going to read. And I used the fact that Sylvia was going to be my protagonist and my point of view character as kind of my guiding light. So I read as much as I possibly could about her and her life. And it, I read her, as many words of hers as I could. Um, while balancing that with, um, you know, I really needed to, to understand the legal arguments that were at stake around Ulysses. Um, I'm going to, okay. And so there were two books that I read about that. You know, obviously I, I needed to have Joyce's voice in my head. So I revisited some of his fiction. Um, I looked at, there were some letters that Joyce and Sylvia exchanged. So, you know, that's what I did. And the good news was, um, because I've been reading about this time period and these writers for, again, my whole adult life, I was able to bring kind of all that reading, you know, forward. I couldn't revisit all of it, but I could kind of dip in and out of reading I had already done to sort of remind myself of some things. So, so they were like I, familiar. They they already lived in your head and exactly. you sort of knew their voices. Yeah. yeah. But so in line with that, then you had to sort of base not not only that but then all the relationships in the story and I guess like I, I almost want to pick and choose in my questions here but I think maybe to start with the first relationship I was delighted and somehow didn't pick up on the fact that this was going to be a queer story until I started reading it and I was so happy and it surprised me that I didn't know this before um and then Most people I've spoken to about the book didn't either so uh yeah so tell me a little bit about uh Adrienne and how you got to know her yeah, you know, so this is this is a, an aspect of Sylvia's story that isn't very well known. I think it's because as as queer lives sort of become more known and and more talked about openly, I think it's becoming people who have known about Sylvia. I think have always known it. Um, I didn't really realize it until I did the research for this book because you know back when I read her memoir the first time in college, 
it isn't clear from her memoir because she wrote her memoir for an American audience in the 1950s. <laughs> so she really minimized her relationship with Adrienne. She didn't, she didn't talk very much about Adrienne. Um, she really puts the focus on her relationships with her kind of friendship relationships with the famous writers, which you know, obviously, you know, her publisher wanted her to do because that was what was going to sell all the copies of her books. Um, but the 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 major biography of her that came out in the 1980s by Noel Riley Fitch makes it clear that you know Sylvia and Adrienne were partners in business and romantically, um, and and all all recent writing has. Uh, you know, made it clear that that Sylvia was a lesbian and um, that Adrienne was her partner, um, you know, in many ways, a life partner. Um, so, and it was, it was delightful to sort of uncover this. And I think a really important aspect of Sylvia and Adrienne's relationship is the friendship that is based on their shared love of books. And it is really what carries their relationship through the many stages it goes through. No spoilers, that's all I'll say. <laughs> um, and, you know, another, and so so Ad, let me just say something about, Ad, let me give you a background on Ad, Adrienne. We've sort of been talking around her. Adrienne, in 1915, in her early 20s, opens a bohemian bookstore in the left bank um, that caters to like, you know, the, the, the liberal um, French intellectuals um, of the war years. Okay. And by the time Sylvia stumbles into this bookstore in 1917 and it's in full swing and Sylvia falls in love with the stop, the shop. And the shop is a hybrid bookstore and lending library because books are very expensive and writers are broke. And Sylvia immediately plugs into this, this French literary world and starts lending out her own copies of English language literature because these French intellectuals are hungry to read books in English, but they're not very well available in France. So Sylvia sees this opportunity to kind of provide this service to the French intellectual community. So when she opens Shakespeare and Company, she thinks of it as kind of the, the sister store to Adrienne's store which it is. It Sylvia opens Shakespeare and Company as an English language a bookstore and lending library. Now, having no idea that it will actually become the home of the lost generation American writers. Um, and and for, for 20 years, you know, those two stores, Adrienne's and Sylvia's, almost function as one store. <laughs> um, it's, it's, it's really wonderful. I mean, if you love books and, you know, Adrienne herself calls it Odiania, like a sort of mythical paradise of books. Yeah, it, it's one of those places you wish you could join in, right? Every and the ambiance really carries that through. And then the other relationship, I guess, the major one in, in the story is Joyce, you're you're writing James Joyce, you're writing about Ulysses, and you've got these Joycean scholars probably in the back of your head checking every <laughs> little fact. What was what was it like uh creating him? Because he's he's quite the character. I mean, we, you know that by his work, but there's so much more here going on. Like you yeah. really feel his dynamic with, with Sylvia and all of the evolutions of that dynamic. I really, I really felt it. You know, Joyce. I, I guess a few things about that. Like, you know, so again, I, I did as much research as I could to kind of get the essence of Joyce right. But I try, you know, I'm very glad that this book wasn't my first try at historical fiction because I might have given up, you know, exactly as you said. Like, how am I, how am I supposed to like put words in the mouth of James Joyce and Ernest Hemingway and all these famous writers? Um, but I fortunately I'd had some practice with my first two novels. You know, I practiced with John F. Kennedy and I practiced with Alfred Hitchcock and Grace Kelly. <laughs> Um, so when it came time for me to like, you know, really go there with the literary giants of the 20th century, I was, I had, um, I had like jumped, cleared a few hurdles already, mental hurdles already. And again, I, I really try to embrace the fact that this is my version of James Joyce. It's not anybody else's version. Um, and you know, the other thing about all of these characters really is, um, you know, they're just people. <laughs> um, in the end, you know, Joyce had his brilliant side and he, and, 
also, which seems kind of superhuman to us, but he's, he was also a man. He was a husband and a father. Um, and he drank too much and he loved word games. He was, he was, he loved music. He liked to sing. Um, he was, he was a person, you know, and Sylvia became friends with the person. So, you know, whenever I ran across, you know, wonderful details in my research that really humanized the two of them and helped me understand the nature of their relationship, I looked for ways to work those into the book. You know, so for instance, they, there's a game that they they play in the novel, which they really did play in real life, which was the sort of spot Leopold Bloom is what I call it. Um, you know, they would stand on the steps of the store or go to a cafe and smoke um, their themselves through a pack of cigarettes and they would watch the, the, the world go by and they would say, oh, that's Leopold Bloom, that's Molly Bloom, that's Stephen Dedalus, you know, um, and and so they really did do this. And so that gave me such a sense of fun and play in their relationship. And so I gave them one or two other games also that I don't, I don't, you know, they didn't necessarily play. Um, they played, <laughs> they played a lot. They, they were both multilingual. And so they played a lot of multilingual word games, which I could not try and mimic because I am not myself multilingual. <laughs> so I had to kind of skip over that. Um, so actually that that's a, that's a good sort of segue question. I guess we'll go back to Joyce and Ulysses, but this multilingual aspect, because you're writing a book set in Paris about an American shop, and then you've got these people who are not fluent in French, and you've got characters that are not fluent in English, and you've got all this translation stuff going on. What was that like? Well, I mean, I, I my main and really only language is English. I did the, the only other language I've ever taken in my life is French. So I do have some rudimentary knowledge of fr the French language, um, which I really, you know, stretched to its capacity um, in places. And, you know, whenever I, if I needed a particular phrase in French, I would go to someone I knew who, who spoke, you know, good French and, and I would ask, but um, you know, I know that there's there's some commentary throughout the book about the 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 writers and characters who who do kind of immerse themselves in the life of Paris and speak French and those who don't. And that was an important like that was actually something that Sylvia herself commented on. You know, she absolutely be, like became French as French as she possible as a person could. You know, she she was you know completely bilingual. Um, but by, and, and one of the things she really likes about Ernest Hemingway is he, he does, he is too. He also completely immerses himself in, in Paris, um, intellectual life and cultural life, but Gertrude Stein does not. <laughs> um, yeah, she, she's quite a figure too. I mean, she was, a, right. Yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, I, I did what I could with, 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 the, the skills and knowledge that I had on, on the, the front of language. Yeah, I liked that, um, I mean, the big word, that dichotomy of, of Joyce versus Stein, and it was this battle. Yes, yes, Joyce also complete, you know, being, you know, a lover of language, he also really immersed himself in, in the, the French, um, French living. Um, you know, he, he and his family lived there for years years and years without, without really interruption after having lived in Italy for years without interruption. So sort of back to Joyce and Ulysses. So you had to uh, focus on that. The, the So you said that was a something you discovered in, in the research and that the publication and the, the process of that and all the heartache that came with that. Mm -hmm. uh, what was, uh, I'm assuming you'd read Ulysses before and this was, yeah, you know, I, I knew that Ulysses was a banned book, right? Um, but I didn't really understand what the the sort of legal and artistic stakes were when it became a banned book. And also, um, I, I go into this in much more detail in the book, and so it's not a big spoiler. What I really didn't understand until I researched this book, and I think very few people really do, is that in 1921, when Ulysses becomes a banned book, it's never the book or Joyce that stands trial. It's two women. <laughs> 
Margaret Anderson and Jane Heap, who are the editors of an avant-garde literary journal in New York called The Little Review. And The Little Review has been serializing Ulysses since 1918. And they have increasingly come under the, um, the, the uh, scrutiny of the New York Society for the Suppression of Vice the vice squad. I know it's I, but the vice squad, um, which is <laughs> this man named John Sumner, who, who just has a bee in his bonnet about Margaret and Jane, because they are a lesbian couple. And they had both um, in earlier years supported this um, well-known anarchist named Emma Goldman. And here they are serializing this potentially obscene novel called Ulysses. And so they, the, so the vice squad uses the post office as its instrument of censorship. So when the, when, when, you know, um, the little review goes out in the mail to its subscribers, it was, it was getting seized, <laughs> um, and sometimes burned and, um, you know, finally they are arrested for publishing, um, you know, I should double check this. I think it was the Nausicaa episode of Ulysses. So um, they 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 are brought to trial for publishing obscenity and they are found guilty. And by extension, the book then becomes a banned book. Um, but it's really these two brave women who stand trial for publishing it. And as you were writing it, I mean, like a hundred years later, and I'm sure you were getting all this stuff in the media about books being banned Yes. now yes that that it i mean did that um uh, do you think that impacted how much of it or it's just because it was just the same story and it's just happening again do you think that it impacted sort of the way that it was written no i mean i mean listen books books are we we go through these cycles of censorship i feel like it, at least in the united states we go through these cycles of censorship and yes we were in we were in a cycle of it when as i was sort of i think all of that was really happening more as the book was in was in edits so there wasn't very i mean i couldn't have I don't think it really would have changed the way I wrote the book. And, you know, I, I, about censorship in general, I mean, I think I generally take a historian's view. I mean, we can't really know how people will view the censorship of 2022 for some years yet. Yeah, um, that's true. Like retroactive. Right, exactly. I mean, but, but what we know about uh, Ulysses is that the people who believed in Ulysses as art you know, Sylvia and her crowd, they were right. <laughs> it was art. It wasn't, it wasn't smut, you know? Um, and the, the people who saw that they were the forward thinkers of their time. And I don't want to give spoilers, but do you think it'll be a story, you know, I read it, there, there's so much emotion and, and energy and so much that she puts into this book and this work and getting it out there and, and saving it. Like that's historical, so it's not spoilers. Yeah. Um, do you do you think it's a an inspirational story or a cautionary tale of like how much you give? I, I, do you know what I mean? I think can't it be both? I think it can be both, right? Like I think you know she she says in her own memoir that she does not recommend that anyone go into the venture of publishing as she did, which was knowing <laughs> nothing, and you know. Um, you know, but she has such a sense of humor about it, you know, I don't, and I don't think, I think that even knowing what she knew at the end, she still would have done it. You know, I think it was, you know, it was, let's just leave it at the publishing of Ulysses was for her an enormous roller coaster ride, but what a thrill, right? Like all the ups and downs. I mean, I think she, as frustrated as she got at particular moments, um, you know, over the course of a 10 year period, I think she would absolutely have done it again. Um, because I think she, I think she, you know, at the, at the, at the end, she absolutely knew that what she had done had changed literature. I mean, by, by the, by the early thirties, you know, we have William Faulkner writing in a, you know, a Joycean mode. We have, you know, Virginia Woolf, who who had refused to publish Ulysses in 1921 in Richmond, England, writing in a Joycean mode, you know, like she saw how important she saw that she was really right, and and that she was right to have published it 
when she did. Yeah, and Wolf probably more provocative than than even Joyce was debatably. Right. It's it it paved the way, right? It yeah. paved. So like easier question. Uh there's a lot about food. How did you go well, about researching all the delicious food? Um I you know, I just love food and I <laughs> I, I I love French food and you know, one of the, I and I I do cook myself so I know my way around a kitchen. So that was and and Adrienne, I think a lot of the food is linked to Adrienne. Adrienne was a well-known gourmet cook. Um and lover of all things gourmet. Um, so that was an easy thing to give her um, as a as a character trait. It was true. It was something that I really identified with in her. Um, you know, so when she's like making the macarons for the and, and you know, and like you know, cooking all night in her kitchen um, for something, and I think you know, all that felt really real to me and and fun to write. Um, and. I think because I really enjoy food um, in in many ways, um, it's a way for me to add kind of texture and local color to to a novel. Um, and you know who doesn't love French pastry and yeah. <laughs> and reading about French pastry, <laughs> all, all of that. I know. So to go back to the cover, right? So yes, the tell me about it. Where, where <laughs> did it come from? And so, okay, is, is, so is it Sylvia over here? Yeah, so people who listen to the, I guess people who are seeing this can see that I'm gesturing to a painting that's behind me, which is the cover of the book. So, okay, so much, many, many, many times a book cover is created from, in in a publisher's art department from a bunch of like of stock images that are artfully put together um, to create a harmonious picture for the cover. Um, I don't really know why, but in the case of the Paris bookseller, my um, publisher decided to commission a painter named Terry Mura, who I guess used to do this quite a lot for book covers um, like years ago, but has now really transitioned to just being a fine art painter. And he lives in Southern California um, to paint the store and Sylvia and Joyce. And you see the little dog, Teddy, also. He was my request. He's actually a character in the book. He's in a, he's in a few really important scenes. So I thought that Teddy should make an appearance on the cover. Um, and, and so really I just, I'm, I will be eternally grateful to my publisher for making this the cover. Um, and I managed to get my hands on it and buy it. So that is why I always, and that's the original behind you. Yes, this is the painting. Oh my God. Yeah. So, so what I don't know, and I should just ask, because I get this question asked me a lot. So Terry obviously painted this painting in his studio in Los Angeles, and then he must've taken a photo of it, you know, which then went to the Berkeley art department and from, and from the digital image of the painting, they created the cover. Mm -hmm. So they, you know, they layered the, the title and my name. All, the, all that stuff on top of it but is so is this like the original it, it's a so they they is this based on what the original Shakespeare and company would have looked like is it the current yeah. store so, like so there was a there was a whole bunch of back and forth between me and the publishing team and the artist he did a bunch of sketches he started with like pencil sketches and you know everyone was looking at the photographs that exist of of the store okay the store also just as a side note had two locations um and i don't know uh, and none of the the locations of Sylvia's store are the current Shakespeare and company. I, I hope we get, uh, hopefully we'll talk about that for a few minutes, at least at the end. But so she had one location for two years when she first opened on a street called the Rue du Pitren. But in 1921, she moved around the corner to the Rue de l'Odeon, which was across the street from Adrienne's store. So that's really when Adrienne called their two stores Odeonia. So it's based on the Rue de l'Odeon. And please excuse my French. I know it's not great. So, um, mm-hmm. So this this image is based on the Rue de la the photographs of the Rue de la Odeon store. Okay, um, and so that's what it is. So it was it's based on photographs. The one of the questions we really had though was what color was it? Because all all okay. the all the photographs are black and white, 
And I really looked back at all my books about that might have said what color the store was and we couldn't figure it out. Now, the current Shakespeare and Company in Paris, which again is not Sylvia's store, but it's related, is green. And many times when Sylvia's store is represented on a book cover, like, like, like the current edition of her memoir represents the store as green. And I don't know whether that's because they have, they know something I don't know that the store original store was green, or if they're just somehow apocryphally it's gone down as green and everyone now paints it as green. I don't know, but we, we just decided that green was the safe color. <laughs> um, and yeah, and you've got the green the green chair in the book that keeps coming up. That's that's true. That that I made up. That was a, that was a that was a work of fiction. I really made. wished I had a green chair for this interview. I kept thinking about it. <laughs> yeah. So, but you know, I also like the fact that we do represent it as green, and that it, it it's also kind of a uh, a hearkening to to the current store, which is green and has like yellow in the in the um in the the title of the store. So did you go to Paris and then go to the existing shop and then sort of have I, a walk around? Is that I did, I did. I got to go to Paris in the summer of 2019 before the world shut down. And yes, yes, and I and I got to soak it up. It was really amazing. I actually got to stay in a building that um James Joyce himself lived in for in the summer of 1921. Um, he and his family lived there. It was on loan to him from the French poet Valerie Larbeau, who's a character in the book and a really good friend of Sylvia's. So uh, there's two plaques on the outside of this building that said one that says, you know, Valerie Larbeau lived here for many years and James Joyce lived here while he was writing Ulysses. No one, no one actually knows which apartment it was, but it's, it's on, um, uh, you know, a lovely little street. And if you, you know, sort of walk up the driveway, which it empties into this beautiful cobblestone courtyard. Um, and so I got to imagine Joyce like sitting on a bench under a tree, working on Ulysses on a hot, you know, summer afternoon. And, up the just up the block there's another one of those plaques that says this is where Ernest Hemingway first lived when he lived moved to Paris so I was really in that neighborhood now so those those residences I did many many I walked these routes many times those residences were about a 15 in ish minute walk to Sylvia's store um, and, and if you walk, if you walk between Sylvia's store on the Rue de la Odeon and the current store now, um, that's about, if you make no stops at all, it's barely a 10 minute walk. And I actually, if you, on a, on a website called Trip Fiction, I did a little walking tour between the stores. Um, so you so, and I, you know, I, um, show you a few places to stop and take nice pictures and buy a souvenir also. So you, so you can, you can easily walk these, these distances. They're not long. Um, the current store, shall I talk a little bit about the yeah, current please. We sort of talked around it so much. Those so, are so the current store um, is in this wonderful location in Paris. It's like, it's right on the Seine. You, if you stand in front of the store, you are looking at Notre Dame Cathedral. I mean, it's really like an amazing location. Um, and it has been in that location since 1951. Um, Sylvia had to close her store in 1941 during the Nazi occupation of Paris, and she never reopened. The, the current Shakespeare and Company actually opened under a different name, Le Mistral, um, and it was opened by a different American named George Whitman. And Sylvia was a regular in George's store in Le Mistral. And George renamed the store Shakespeare and Company in 1964 on the 400th anniversary of Shakespeare's birth. Um, but also Sylvia at that point had, had passed away. And so that store is very much an homage to Sylvia's store. Um, if you go in there, they have all kinds of history and ephemera uh, um, about Sylvia's original store. They they make the connection as clear as they possibly can. Um, and this is really lovely. George had a daughter who he named Sylvia, 
And so Sylvia Whitman runs Shakespeare and Company today. And I've gotten to meet her and her two lovely children. Um, and I got to actually, I signed books there last spring in, um, in May. It was really like kind of wildest dreams come true kind of stuff. It's like you joined the community you wrote about. It was, it was a little bit like that. <laughs> wow. um, yeah, it's really, I mean, so, you know, this Shakespeare and Company has had a much, much longer history than Sylvia's. And there's a great novel about that store too. Um, you know, that store has played host to, all, you know, other generations of wandering American writers. You know, the beat poets all went there. Um, you know, all the writers and the rock stars of the 60s went there. Um, you know, it's it's an important place in its own right. So you sort of alluded to this in the conversation, but there's so much. So the, the book ends at a given time, but there's all this other stuff that you're talking about now. How did you know when to stop Sylvia's story? Because you didn't stop with the closure, which you've now mentioned. Right. Yeah. So it's a good question. And this this book had many drafts <laughs> and there was, there were some years that I wrote that wound up on the cutting room floor. You know, mm -hmm. I wound up deciding that the most satisfying arc is the arc that's in the novel, which is basically from when she meets Adrienne in 1917 to when in the 1930s, 19, basically the, the book ends in 1937, so 20 years later, um, when the store is kind of saved by the friends of Shakespeare and Company. That and, and her journey with Ulysses at that point is also essentially complete. Um, so there was there was just it just made sense. I I, I did actually try, I, I did actually write beyond that section initially but those those pages always kind of felt kind of tacked on and how do you do also like I felt like I was like doing all of World War II in like 80 pages and like that you know it just wasn't it wasn't right for the book the, the book I was trying to write so you know yeah, I guess to be kind of a downer from there yeah 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 I mean it's really hard sometimes to figure out, you know, how much of a life to represent and how much of a, of an, of a, of an event to represent, like, where is the frame going to be? I, I'm like looking at the frame of the painting, right. You know, like, where is the frame going to be? And sometimes you just, you have to like do some cropping. So I had to do some cropping. Yeah. I guess it's the, the thing with historical fiction is different from just fiction because with regular fiction, you ask authors, Oh, well, what happens to the characters afterwards? Well, People can just go read the biographies and they can find out what happens to the characters afterwards. Yeah. This one, so as a result of the cropping I had to do, the author's note for this book became very long <laughs> because I do um I do sort of tell the rest of the story in a much abridged way in the author's note. Yeah. But in case people didn't, I don't know, do all the copies have the author's note in it? Because mine also has discussion questions, which I chose not to use here so that if people have it in their book clubs, they can use the discussion. Yeah, I, I think I think all the editions should have the author's note. So my, my, my final question that I had on my list is, uh, so the book really does read like, it, it's a love letter to literature, to writers, to book distributors. So what advice do you have for aspiring writers? Oh. Um, well, I, I'm going to answer that question, but I also want to say about the love letter. I did write this, most of it, during the pandemic when libraries and bookstores really came to the rescue of books <laughs> and writers and readers, right? Like you all put your heads together and, you know, and publicists and all the, pe all the people connected with getting books into readers' hands, right? You guys all got together to figure out how to make sure people could keep reading and keep connecting with writers. And I, that was, that was so inspirational to me. I was like, oh, Sylvia would have been on the front lines of this. Um, and in she fact, would have Sylvia had like a was. delivery service. 
Yes, yes. And in fact, Sylvia Whitman in, in Shakespeare and Company Paris was. Um, so anyway, so there's that. And I, I I always, that's such an important thing, I think, to recognize. And because it, it did, it did inspire me. It wasn't, I couldn't write about it directly, obviously, but I, it really helped me embrace this idea that like the bookseller is the, is, is an important figure in, in our communities, in our lives. Right. Okay. So advice to, to aspiring writers. Find your community. <laughs> um, you know, I, I have found this to be true in my own life. And I think it was, it's, it was, it's clearly true of the writers in this book. You need to find the people who are going to help sustain you over a period of decades. <laughs> and it's not always going to be the same one person. It's going to be maybe different people over time. Um, but the writing life is very long and it's full of a lot of ups and downs. And you need people to exchange work with. You need people who are going to hand you the tissues and show you back to your desk. Um you know, pick you up and dust you off, you know, all the metaphors, right? Um, and and it's just so, so, so important. And, and, you know, it's also fun, right? It's fun to have friends that you're going to talk to about your work, about th projects you're excited about, things that, um, and, and it's essential to have friends who really understand, um, you know, the kind of specific disappointments that come with being a writer. Um, so I would say that. And so how do you find your people? You take classes, you join writers groups, you look for them in your community centers. Um, you can take, there are, there are places like Grub Street in Boston and the Gotham Writers Workshop out of New York who offer lots of classes online these days. And so you can take them from Nebraska, um, or can or Montreal, wherever you are, um, and so that's how you find, that's how you find your community and you just build it over time. That's solid advice. I mean, I definitely, you know, you wish that you've had people in your life that uh, are such advocates for the things that you write, like you, with Ulysses for sure, like Sylvia goes out on a limb and that pays off in the end. So it's... Yeah. So hang out I think at your local store, hang out at your local library. There, those are the where the book lovers are. <laughs> so I'm gonna drop some some information here for people who are looking to buy the book. Uh, support your local bookstores. We yes. work a lot with Paragraph Books, so we recommend that you go and buy your copy there. Uh, as you're waiting, also for the library copy. Often, what happens? What I do is I borrow from the library, and then if I like something, then I buy it. That that is my my way. Lots of people do that. So with that, I'm gonna open up to questions from our attendees. We have some people that are over the phone, so they won't be able to speak, but anybody else who's got a question, now is the time, drop it in the chat. While we're waiting. Um, oh, just sort of final question on the, on the cover. So are there physical descriptions of of Sylvia and Adrienne, because like they're it, in letters and exchanges, you wouldn't have that stuff. So there are pictures of them. Um, okay. or there are plenty of pictures of them. And, you know, yes, people, people um, wrote about the both of them and described them both. Sylvia is almost always described like in bird-like terms. I think, I think Hemingway even uses, says she's bird-like, but he's not the only one. I think she's, she's very, I think she's very petite and slim. And um, she, I think she was very, uh, she was kind of tightly coiled and she really was a chain smoker. <laughs> um, and Adrienne was sort of, I think, softer and um, I don't know how much taller she was, but she, um, was a larger figure. Um, and she, she wore kind of old fashioned clothes. Um, you know, she always seems to be wearing a cape or a long skirt, um, even in the twenties, right. When the hemlines were, were, you know, lifted, um, they both had shorter hair. Um, yeah. And, you know, Adrienne had this, you know, even you can tell this, even in the black and white photos that she had this like very fair skin, but very dark hair. Um, so I, I, I try to describe her that way and as part of Sylvia's attraction to her. Um, and and I guess that was sort of, the, the styles were codified, presumably, because you wouldn't, like people knew that people were out, but they 
would maybe guess based on their style or their hair and yeah i mean i think that the the real codified drafting happened in the after hours bars and cabarets and stuff like that i think um I think there was some of it that happened, um, you know, in the just daily life, the, the monocle, like a woman wearing a monocle was a dead giveaway that she, that she was, um, a lesbian, but I, but you know, it's not like all the lesbians were walking around wearing monocles either. That'd be too, <laughs> um, too obvious. No, but like there's, there's something, there's a little line in the book where I have Sylvia reflect that she has a monocle in her desk drawer, <laughs> um, but she's not about to like put it on. Um, <laughs> You know, just, you know, everyone's, you know, we get into like personality differences too. I mean, I think she was really an immensely, um, I hesitate to use the word private um, because she did write this memoir and everything, but she, I think she was content to be in the background. Like she wasn't like, she wasn't spotlight seeking um that's that's a different kind of personality really um you know grace kelly was a spotlight seeker like and so that and there were real reasons for that in her life right and so that was something that was an aspect of her personality i got to explore in writing that book and so sylvia was a really different person yeah i actually i found that aspect of sylvia very relatable you know as, as a librarian who works in a quiet area this kind of more She's not demure at all, though, but she's she's no. really quietly strong. But it yeah. also what's the, the part where she's like intimidated almost by all her friends. That That's a feeling that you get when you interview authors. You're like, will I sound scholarly enough to speak to this person? Yes, you do. Choice, right. <laughs> and I, I, when I was, you know, preparing for this, I was thinking like, oh, I relate to Sylvia in this experience. Yeah, yeah, right. But, you know, and it's also interesting, like she she really wanted the store to be famous. It's so interesting. Like she didn't really care about fame or anything for herself, but she did want the store to do well and to be well-known. Um, so she, we have a, a question yes. um, from Debbie. She's right. asking, what is your next project? If you're mm. allowed to tell us. I am allowed to tell you. It's coming out in September, in fact, oh, September 19th. Um, it's called All You Have to Do is Call, and it is set in Chicago in the very early 1970s, and it's about an underground women's health clinic before Roe. Hmm. It is loosely based on the women of the Jane Collective, but it's it's in many ways really a departure for me. Um, you know, Paris Bookseller, Kennedy Debutante, and Girl in White Gloves were all sort of niches of historical fiction that are no, that's known as biographical fiction. So it really takes the life of one woman who once lived and tells that story. All you have to do is call. All the characters are entirely fictional, and it's like loosely based on real events. Um, but, and instead of one main character, point of view character, there are three. So there are three main characters and the narrative gets braided together. So is that the first time that you're, you're doing multi POV work? The first time in a long time. Yeah. My very, very first unpublished novel was three points of view. The secret novel that no one will ever see. No, it's not not a secret. Actually, I talk about I, I talk about this very openly. I have five unpublished novels. This is much more common than people want to talk about. <laughs> um, I guess that's that's another sort of like bonus piece of advice for aspiring writers is just keep writing. I think about Dory in Finding Nemo singing, just keep swimming, just keep swimming. It's like, just keep writing, just keep <laughs> writing. You know, you just got to do it. You just got to keep doing it. Like there's a lot of no, five, five, five unpublished novels. Um, but it happened and you know, it was all worthwhile when it happened. That's crazy. I guess, yeah, people don't really think about that. They just assume that you write it up, you get some, you get your community and then they tell you what's wrong with it and then you fix it and then your editor helps and then you're off no, to the races. Is, no, I mean, you know, I, I've been writing a long time. I mean, I wrote my first unfinished novel in fifth grade. So I've been on this path for a long time. Um, you know, I'm not counting that in the five. Um, <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, and you know, but all, every one of those five 
taught me really, really important things about writing novels, right? And it it got me to the point where I was able to write The Kennedy Debutante. And um, and additionally, some of those books got me other things. My first novel got me into graduate school for creative writing. Um, my, uh, my third novel um, got me my first literary agent. She tried to sell the book unsuccessfully, but she, you know, she, we were together for a long time and she did sell my memoir. Um, this is not a writing manual. So, you know, like there are rewards along the way. Also, oh, you have you have a a non writing manual that we can purchase to, as well. Tell us about that. I didn't mention um, that. Oh yeah, so under under a different name, Carrie Majors, um, which is my married name, um, is uh, this is not a writing manual, and it's kind of a it's like an advicey memoir about um, being what it's what it was like to become a writer, and I think important. I still feel like this is important. I wrote it before I got a book deal. And so it's really about why the writing life is worth living even before, you know, you've inked the big deal, <laughs> you know? Um, so it's 10 years old at this point. You can still buy it. It, was it, it, wasn't, it wasn't too difficult, a, a transition with family names, right? Sounds similar enough that you can, people will remember it. So under Carrie Majors? Yeah, I mean, you can, you can, you can find it. It's, it's, it's on my website. Um, and um, it's not hard to find. Amazing. So we look forward to your September project. I think that's all the time we have. Okay. Um, so I just want to remind everybody that on Wednesday, January 25th at 2pm, my colleague Daniel Belanger will be interviewing author Armando Lucas Correa author of The Night Travelers. So thank you so much, uh, Carrie, for joining us tonight. And thank you for all of you who attended and listened. And thank you, Debbie, for asking a question, being the brave one tonight. We have a lot of people that call in, so they actually can't ask questions. But we also have a lot of people in the chat that I'm sure will come back. If they want to get in touch with you and ask you questions, where can they find you on the internet? Oh, so I am most active on Instagram. I am at Carrie Mayer writer on Instagram and I'm there all the time. <laughs> Perfect. So I also have a website, which is carriemayer.com. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much. And so the Paris bookseller, everybody have a wonderful evening. Thank you for joining us. Bye.